there, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of E Parvis Unum. For those of you who have been here for a while, thank you for still being here. I appreciate it. If you have the time and you use Apple Podcasts, please leave a rating and a review. It is very helpful to get the podcast noticed by other people. And to those of you who are new, thank you so much for being here. I'm excited to have you here with us. It's just me, but I say us, not in a royal we sort of thing, just this is a community. I'm here talking to you, but we're talking about things together. We're learning together, so it's in us. Anyway, if you are new to the podcast, just to let you know what this is all about, I started the podcast to bring people together, as you might have gathered from the title, E Pluribus Unum, out of many one. The purpose was to find some common ground, some common values. A lot of that is based in Torah, because I think if we all return to Torah and the Bible, even if one is not particularly religious, there is a lot to be learned. And I think if we all do that, we will find some true unity. And the other purpose of the podcast was to, is to make the conservative viewpoint clear so that people are not so afraid of conservatives and actually get to hear what conservatives think and believe from a conservative, not from a news channel, which is on the other side and might not be so honest in their reporting. So that's what Eupluribus Unum is about. Again, I'm so glad you're here. I hope today's podcast will interest you. Today, because it is Friday, and I try to do this every week, on Friday, talk about the weekly Torah portion. So each week in synagogues, a different portion of the Torah is read. The five books are split so that it covers each week, and then When the new year begins, we start the cycle again. This week, we are in Torah portion Mishpatim, which means laws. This is probably the Torah portion that people are thinking of when they think of all of the laws that are in the Torah. This week, there are 23 positive commandments listed and 30 negative commandments or prohibitions listed. So there, that's a lot of stuff, this week's Torah portion. The interesting thing about this week's Parsha is what it follows. So last week's portion was Yisro. And in last week's portion, the Jews were given the Ten Commandments. The giving of the Ten Commandments is pretty much the most awesome event in the history of the world. And I say awesome in the more traditional sense, as in full of awe, as opposed to the skater dude like, yo, that's awesome. Though it was also that kind of awesome when the Israelites received the Ten Commandments. So Picture the scene, right? The Israelites are in the desert. They have just escaped Egypt after several hundred years of slavery, and then the ten plagues, and then they were chased to the sea, and then they crossed the sea when it was split, and then they finally received the Ten Commandments. And the week right afterwards, it's all these laws. And it's not laws about sacrifices or rituals or anything super spiritual. Most of the laws in this week's Parsha are civil laws, things that have to do with people, laws about slavery and murder and fighting and people's oxes that gore people. It's it's all very nuts and bolts. We are taught that the Torah is not specifically a history book, meaning that the sequence of events might be a little bit out of place because the purpose of the Torah isn't to teach history. It's to teach how to live from an ethical and moral values perspective. If this portion comes 
right after the portion of the giving of the Ten Commandments at Sinai, it doesn't necessarily mean that these commandments were given right away. They could have been given in any of the 40 years that the Israelites were traveling in the desert. But their placement after the portion that has to do with Sinai does have a message to teach us. And what is the message that it has to teach us? That what God most cares about is how we act towards each other. And then we act in a way which pleases him. It would be normal, and I think one might expect that right after the giving of the Ten Commandments, if there were to be a portion about laws, then it would be laws about sacrifice or about building the temple or about the different holidays. But immediately after the giving of the Ten Commandments are these civil laws, because that's what Hashem, that's what God most cares about, is how we treat each other, that we act in a way which glorifies his name. And in order to act in a way which glorifies his name, we have to act ethically to take care of the poor and the needy and our slaves and our parents and our children, that we have to act. There is a certain way that God expects us to act towards people if we want to claim to be adherents of his will. That's why we have Mishpatim right here after Yisro, after the giving of the Ten Commandments. There's another reason, and that is, and I wish I could remember where this came from. I read it, and I like to give credit where credit is due, but I do not remember where I read this idea. But I really like it, so I'm going to share it anyway. We have to have these laws right after the giving of the Ten Commandments, because the things that come up in the laws that are discussed in this Parsha have to do with things that we as humans will come up against whether we like it or not. We might have this idea, especially after the giving of the Ten Commandments, of a world that is totally spiritual and beautiful and we can just be focused on our own devotion and service to God and we don't have to worry about mundane things. But this Parsha comes in and says, no, it's not just spiritual on this earth. When you are on this earth, you are in a human form and thus you have to put up with the things that people do to each other, which include things like friends fighting or people murdering each other or slavery or poverty. These are real things and we have to put up with them. Here's how. And this is basically a here's how. So that's another reason why this Parsha follows the previous one. As I mentioned at the beginning, there are 53 commandments listed in this Parsha. We're not going to go over all of them, partially for time and also because I am not Torah scholar, Talmudic scholar. I haven't gone to years and years of yeshiva to really understand any of these laws in its fullness. One must attend a lot of schooling. I mean, it's just like being a lawyer. Any one of us might sort of understand, we might know a law and we might sort of understand the principle of a law, but to understand how it became law and where it comes from and when it applies, that requires law school. So the same thing with the laws in the Torah. We know what the text says. We might have a basic understanding of how to apply it, but to explain all the intricacies of it, it is necessary to really deeply study it. I have not done that. So we're not going to go so deeply into any one of these laws. We'll just talk about a few of them in a broad sense. Before we get into any specific laws, I do want to point out something else that we are taught by this week's Parsha and all of the laws in it. Not having to do with this Parsha following the previous, but what all of these laws reminds us. There's two things that we have to keep in mind when we read this Parsha. The first is that we need the oral law to be able to fully understand and interpret the Torah. So in Judaism, we have the Tanakh, 
which is Torah, Nevi'im, and Kasuvim. So basically the first source materials, the Bible, the prophets, Psalms, the book of Esther, Ecclesiastes, books like that. And then we have the Mishnah and the Talmud, which are explanatory texts. Those are primarily concerned with the application of the teachings from the Torah and the other texts. They go hand in hand. As I mentioned before, to truly understand what the Torah expects from us, what God expects from us, we need to do all of that additional study. Here's a specific example. In this week's Torah portion, we get the phrase, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, etc. The text itself just says an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But Judaism has never interpreted it that way and has always meant it to be a monetary repayment for the thing. So the cost of an eye for an eye, the cost of a tooth for a tooth, not that you should poke out someone's eye if someone pokes out someone else's eye. It's never meant that. But the text would make it seem that way. And without the oral tradition and the additional explanation, it would seem that that's what it means. If I poke out your eye, you get to poke out my eye. So we need those interpretations and the commentary. We can't just read the Torah on its own. The Torah is not meant to be read just on its own. So that's one thing that this partial reminds us to keep in mind. The other thing, which is a tricky concept to wrap one's mind around, and I'm not sure that I fully have my mind wrapped around it, so we can work on this together, and that is that the Torah was written for the people in its time, and it's also written for all time. Let me give you an example. In this week's Parsha, we have a lot of laws about slavery and how to properly treat a slave. It was written for the, a time when everyone had slaves. So what God was saying was, you live in a time when there are slaves, I don't want you to have slaves, but if you're going to, because that's what the world is right now, here's how you treat them. And it's, we'll go into those specifics a little bit more, what Torah demands of people who keep slaves. So in a sense, that was a Torah written for its time, in a time when every culture had slavery, slavery of other peoples, and also sometimes slavery of its own peoples. But the Torah is also written for all time. Ultimately, God does not condone slavery and does not want there to be slavery. And that can also be seen in these laws. And of course, the fact that the Exodus is such a major part of the whole Torah, that should be proof enough that God doesn't want slavery. So there's this dual thing. It's written for people who did have slavery, but ultimately what God wants is for there not to be slavery. We have to be able to look at the Torah both in its time for some of the specifics and then also outside of its time and, and for all time in what the moral and ethical demands are. By the way, that point about the Exodus being so central, being an indication that God does not want slavery is an idea borrowed from Dennis Prager. Thank you very much, Mr. Prager. Let's now delve into a few of these specific laws. So since we already talked about it, we'll go back. The eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. This has only ever meant a monetary repayment. If I poke out someone's eye, then I have to pay that person the value of their eye. It does not mean that my eye should be poked out. The Torah does not condone that sort of violence and that sort of disfigurement of people's bodies. This is almost as big as people thinking the in the Ten Commandments that is do not kill instead of do not murder. Some of what's in the Torah has is so in the public consciousness that people don't even really think about it and therefore don't really know what it means. They think do not kill is a 10th commandment. So then they are against, for instance, capital punishment 
or maybe they are pacifists and won't go to war because they think the commandment says do not kill. That's not what the commandment says. It says do not murder, and that's a very different thing. Same thing here. People think an eye for an eye is literal, so they're either for it and want revenge and retribution when they are wronged, or they're totally against it and think that therefore the Torah is an archaic document because it's suggesting something as barbaric as physical retribution. And that's not what it means. It's only ever meant something monetary. So that's just important to keep in mind. If anyone ever brings it up, there's that phrase, maybe it's Gandhi? An eye for an eye will leave the world blind. Yes, if an eye for an eye is to be taken literally, then we would blind the whole world. But that is not what God wants, clearly, and that is why it is not a literal phrase. We also already touched upon slavery, so I'll go back to that. So there are a lot of laws about slavery in this week's Parsha, but it might not be what you think. It's not laws about getting a slave. It's laws about how one must treat a slave and how a slave can go free and will go free based upon these laws. For instance, if a slave loses a limb or a major organ because of the work that they are forced to do or because the owner raises his hand against the slave, the slave goes free automatically. Slaves are not supposed to be mistreated or hurt. Slaves also rest on the Shabbos. This is something we talked about last week. Day of rest. Shabbos is not just a day of rest for the Jews. It is a day of rest for everyone. That includes servants. That includes animals. It includes everyone. So this is a little bit of a tricky section for people living in the 21st century, the Torah having all these laws about slavery, because we would probably imagine the law about slavery would be do not have slaves, end of story. And there are different types of slaves enumerated in the Parsha, because there is a slave that is sold into slavery because he stole and couldn't repay his debt. And then there's the slave that is won through conquest. And there's the female slave, which we'll get into. It's tricky. And I think it's okay to admit that sometimes the Torah presents us with tricky ideas, things that we don't understand. So then if we don't understand, we do more research. We don't dismiss the Torah because one thing doesn't make sense to us. We didn't dismiss calculus because one thing didn't make sense to us. We asked the teacher for more help. Or if you were like me, you didn't take calculus. So maybe that's not the best example. But anything we don't understand, we don't dismiss the whole concept. We have to learn about it more and understand where it's coming from. And I think that's really important here. Here are all these laws, but surely God does not condone slavery. So how do I reconcile these two things? I do think that the fact that there are so many laws surrounding slavery was one of God's ways of saying that he doesn't want slavery because he's making it so tricky to be a slave owner. And there are so many laws that a slave owner has to adhere to that he was probably hoping that people would just throw up their hands and say, it's not worth it. No more slaves. But it was a different time. And to just say no slaves might not have might not have even made sense. I'm not talking about the, the ethics of it. People might have just been confused. What do you mean no slaves? We all have slaves. That's just how the world works. As I mentioned, there are a few different types of slaves that are gone over in this week's Parsha. One of them is the idea of a father who sells his daughter into slavery. It's an unfortunate circumstance, the idea of this father who sells his daughter into slavery, usually because the family, I'm sure this still happens in many parts of the world today, and it, of course, has happened throughout history. A family has too many mouths to feed, and so it's easier to send a child off, whether that child was to become an apprentice or priest or a nun, you know, to go into the church or to become a slave. And unfortunately, this is the situation where a family doesn't have enough money and the daughter is sold into slavery. The goal of the daughter being sold into slavery, and I've heard this from two sources, the goal 
is for the young woman, for the girl, to be married to either the master or to the master's son, which again might seem strange to us because the girl who was being sold could not be older than the age of 12 and a half. So that's pretty young, though I don't know if the marriage had to happen when the girl was that young, as opposed to just being promised to be married. But people did get married younger in the past, so it's very possible that once the girl was, I don't know, whatever age, that the marriage did happen. The goal is marriage, because that was a way for this woman to escape the poverty that she was in. And then she's accorded all the rights of a regular wife. She's not a slave wife, she's a wife. Husbands are supposed to provide for their wives food, clothing and intimate time. She, as a wife, was to have all of those. Even if there was a second wife, she could never become just the ex-slave. She was always a wife with all of the rights that a wife has. And if for some reason neither the master or the son wanted her as a wife, then she was to go free with, I think, the money that her father sold her for initially. So she wasn't just freed and then sent to live on the street. Again, sort of a hard couple of laws to think about. First of all, the, the fact of a parent selling their child into slavery is awful to consider. And then even the idea of a young girl being married or at least betrothed to someone possibly older, it's all... See, this is where the Torah is written for its time, for situations that people had to deal with then. That's something hopefully none of us experience today, though I guess if we did experience it, we would know how to act. Also in this week's Parsha is laws about murder what the penalty is for murder. The Torah is very clear that murder must be premeditated. And also, here's one that I personally find tricky, so I'm continuing to look into. Murder only counts for a human 30 days and older. So if someone kills a baby or a fetus, the capital punishment cannot be sought because it's not murder. That doesn't mean that it's okay. The idea of abortion is still not okay, and certainly no one should go around killing infants, but it's not murder in the sense that it does not carry with it the death penalty. And that's sort of the definition of murder in a Torah, is that it's premeditated and that it carries the death penalty. If it's anything else, it's killing, it's manslaughter, but it's not murder. So murder is a very specific thing, and therefore if anyone asks the Torah certainly condones the death penalty and expects it in certain situations, which are very clearly laid out. There are also certain criteria that have to be met for someone to actually be awarded the death penalty. By the way, that's a weird phrase. We say awarded the death penalty. It's not really an award, is it? Anyway, and it's said about the high court that used to exist the first time the Jews had their own state in Israel, that a high court that killed even one person in 70 years was considered a bloody court. So clearly the death penalty was not enacted very commonly because there were a lot of strict criteria that had to be met, but the purpose of letting, the purpose of saying that the penalty is capital punishment is A, to let people know about the severity of the crime, and also to deter people, because if people know that they could be killed for doing something, they're probably less likely to commit that crime. But the idea that murder only includes someone over the age of 30 days old is really interesting. And there is a situation that's brought up in the Parsha. Let's say two men are fighting and one of them hits a pregnant woman and the fetus dies. The man does not get the death penalty. First of all, it was unintentional. And as we already discussed, to get the death penalty, it has to be premeditated. And this was not a premeditated death. So he would not get the death penalty anyway. But secondly, because it is a fetus, I just think that's an interesting concept and something I'm going to look more into what this 
30 days old thing has to do with. Maybe it has to do with viability because it used to be that a baby would not necessarily live after being born because of the level of medical care. So maybe it had to be fully alive and certain that it would continue living. Again, this does not mean that abortion is okay. It just means that this death would not carry the death penalty for the person who perpetrates it. So a few other laws that I think will be interesting to talk about. The first, and this one actually comes up twice in this Parsha, is not to verbally harass a foreigner or to oppress a foreigner because we were foreigners in Egypt. And that, I believe, is the most repeated commandment in the entire Torah, a reminder to not treat others differently just because they are different. Foreigner could mean both someone from a different country or a convert to the Jewish community. Either way, you're not to treat people differently just because they are different. Remember, we were foreigners. And we were foreigners and slaves in Egypt. So we remember that and we don't press or harass or bother people who are different strictly because they are different. We are also reminded not to oppress a widow or an orphan. I think this can be extrapolated to mean anyone who is a... I think this can... I think this can be interpreted to mean anyone who is on the fringes of society, on the lower edges of society, someone who is without help. But at the time, it specifically meant widow and orphan because it was a patriarchal society. And for a woman to be alone or for kids to be without their father, that was a very tough situation to be in. So we are supposed to not just not oppress, but also specifically help those people. If we lend money to someone and we want a security that they'll pay us back, if we take their clothing as security, we have to give it back to them overnight because it's cold and they might need it to sleep. The fact that God pays so much attention to little things like that is really, I mean, it shouldn't surprise me. God knows everything and can pay attention to everything. But the fact that it's so clearly laid out all these specifics on how to lend money and how not to charge interest and how even if someone owes us money, that doesn't take away our responsibility to act kindly towards that person. I think that's a really incredible lesson that we're never off the hook for acting kind or acting virtuously to someone just because they're in our debt doesn't mean that we don't have the responsibility to treat them fairly. This one is something that also I'm struggling with and I'm looking into, but I haven't found any answers yet. We're told not to curse a leader among your people. This is often talked about in present day that we're supposed to follow laws and also supposed to follow the government. I don't know what this means for a government that is unjust or a leader that is evil. I can't imagine that in Stalin's Russia, this law applied. So I don't know exactly where the end is. I don't think we have yet been here, thank God, in the United States. Even if we don't agree with all of our leaders, generally, I don't think we need to curse them or speak ill of them or be defiant of them, though perhaps defiant of certain laws. I don't know. And someone like Ilhan Omar, who's outwardly anti-Jewish, where does someone like that fall into this? I don't know. So it's something that I'm, I'm struggling with because I don't think it can be a blanket statement. I can't imagine people in Germany in 1939 were told not to curse a leader and just to follow along. So so it's it's an interesting concept, but I think generally it's meant if one lives in a generally peaceful, good society to follow the laws and to listen to what the leader says, or at least not to curse. It, disagree is different, but not to curse and not to speak badly of, but if one has disagreements to, to have them in a civil way. We are told not to be biased to a poor man in his lawsuit. 
this one's really interesting to me. And in other parts of the Torah, we're told not to be biased to a rich man in his lawsuit. There might be human nature that would swing either way. Some people would be biased towards a rich man because they would want the rich man on their side. And there would be some who would be biased to a poor man because they have sympathy and empathy for the poor man and think, oh, he's got rotten luck. Let me at least help him here. And this law tells us, no, when it comes to judgments, we're not following our hearts or our emotions. We're following the law. And it doesn't matter who is in court. It doesn't matter if it's a billionaire versus a penniless wretch. They are to be judged equally because they are both humans with the complete faculty for acting in the way that God expects them to. And if someone breaks the law, they break the law and it doesn't matter how much money they have or don't have, which is a really important thing to keep in mind. I think we do have, for a good person, a natural tendency to have sympathy for someone who is poor. I think that is right when it comes to giving charity or offering some extra kindness or help. We should have sympathy for a poor person. But when it comes to judgment, we don't see the money. We just see the people and the act. And in fact, we dignify the poor person by not giving them sympathy because by giving them sympathy, it could be an implication that that we think they're so poor that they don't have still the humanity to make decisions on their own and to choose how they act by treating both the rich man and the poor man equally. We are, according to both of them, the ability to act as free humans. We are also reminded to return lost items, specifically in the Parsha. It's someone's ox or donkey that has run away. We should return it. Even if it's someone we don't like, we should return it. But this is true for everything. We find someone's wallet, a necklace, a book, whatever it is, we should do everything in our power to find who it belongs to. Some things might be really impossible to return. There might be no identifying mark. It could be something of really little value. It's not always easy, but we should endeavor to do whatever we can to return something that is lost. And the last law we're going to go over today is do not cook a young animal in its mother's milk. This is where Jews get the idea of separating meat and milk. So Jews don't eat meat and milk at the same time or at the same meal. And people wait a different amount of time between eating them. Some people wait six hours after eating meat before eating anything dairy. Some people wait three hours, four hours, it depends. After eating milk, I think it's pretty standard that people wait one hour before eating meat, though some people wait half an hour. Some people just rinse out their mouth depending upon whether they had a hard cheese or a soft cheese. So there are slightly different opinions on how exactly this works, but the principle of not having meat and milk together is very important. And in fact, we're also not allowed to sell foods that contain meat and milk. So even if we're not eating it, we can't give it to someone else and can't have any benefit from it. This is different, for instance, from pigs, which Jews are allowed to raise and parts of the pig can be used, not for food, but for other things. But meat and milk is totally a forbidden mixture. And there are two ideas around it. The first is one of cruelty. It's just cruel, even if the mother doesn't know this is what her milk is going to. But the idea of cooking a young animal in its own mother's milk, that's just cruel. And we are given a lot of laws in the Torah about cruelty to animals, which we are supposed to avoid and not engage in at all. In fact, in this Torah portion, is the law about not having sex with animals. And I believe that one does carry the death penalty. And that's considered a cruelty to animals. So cruelty to animals is a big no-no in Judaism. So that's 
One of the interpretations of do not cook a young animal in its mother's milk. The other idea, also mentioned by Dennis Prager and a host of other people, is this idea that Judaism makes a big distinction between life and death, and we do a lot to separate the two. If someone comes in contact with a dead body, they're ritually impure, not because there's something wrong with a dead body, but because we, we keep life and death separate. It's one of the reasons why a man and woman do not have sex while the woman is on her period, because period is a representation of death because it is an unfulfilled life, right? That egg never had a chance to become life and having sex is life creating. So those two things are separate. And the same thing here to separate milk and meat. Milk represents life for baby animals and also for baby humans and for grown-up humans. Milk gives us strength and meat is death. And we just don't combine the two. So that was a very brief overview of Parsha's Mishpatim. As I said, there are 53 laws in this week's Torah portion. So that's quite a lot. And there's also a little bit at the end about Moshe ascending the mountain. It's a very hefty Parsha. If you're interested in learning more, Chabad.org is always a great resource. Torch is a great resource. Aish, there are a lot of really good resources online, but I just wanted to give you a snippet of some of the laws that I find the most fascinating, some of the ones that we might be most familiar with and applicable either to how we live our lives or at least to some of the conversations that are being had these days. So thank you all so much for listening. Again, if you have time, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I very much appreciate it. You can also follow me on Instagram at conservative Jewish female. And remember, always be a little kinder than necessary. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening to E Pluribus Unum. I hope today's episode made you think or brought some clarity and positivity to your day. Subscribe to the show to always get the most recent episode directly to your device. Please leave a rating and a review and share the show with your family, friends, or anyone you think might benefit from a little Torah wisdom and conservative thoughts. For more of my thoughts and ideas I share from others, please follow me on Instagram at conservativejewishfemale or read my blog conservativejewishfemale.blogspot.com. The intro-outro music is Chopin's Waterfall Etude. Have a great day!